0: and Welcome to Pound the Rock, and NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as I always am, by my fellow co-host, Jessica Sharo. What's going on? And Joe Wolfon. What up? We are here to change the narrative on the Cleveland Cavaliers once <laughs> again. You know, one time it's the Cavaliers are trash, another time it's the Cavaliers are going to the finals, and now the Cavaliers are trash once again after the Boston Celtics. Um, the very shorthanded, very young, very Brad Stevens is God- Uh, Boston Celtics took down the Cleveland Cavaliers by a score of 108-83 to in Game 1. Let's start here. You know, everything with the Cavaliers goes as LeBron goes, and LeBron was really terrible in Game 1. 15 points on 5 of 16 shooting with 7 turnovers. Cash, let me start with you. What did the Celtics do to neutralize LeBron?
1: I don't think they necessarily did anything special. I do think, after all of his tough talk, I thought Marcus Morris did as good of a job as you could on LeBron, botting him up, taking away his space. I think one thing the Celtics did really well, and it's something they've done all year, is they helped and recovered really well. So they didn't leave Marcus or whoever else was guarding LeBron on a complete island, Mm -hmm. but they were also very quick with their help, and then they're recovering back to shooter. So unlike, for example, the series against Toronto, LeBron didn't have um, ample time to survey the scene and find an open shooter because those those passing lanes and those open shooters were maybe only open shooters for a split second. And even someone as great and smart as LeBron still needs, you know, a bit of an avenue to find that shooter, and the Celtics just basically weren't giving it to him.
0: Um, Wolfon, I mean, what what did you take out of that first game in terms of defensively, That what the Celtics did? Um, everything. Like,
2: they, they... The big contrast, obviously, we're going to contrast it with the Raptors series mm. uh, because this looked a lot more like Game 1 of the Pacers series, and... Um, the, the aberration right now is looking like that Toronto series where you had a defense that was out of sorts and LeBron picking them apart. And like Cash said, like that is where the Pacers were so successful, was helping and recovering. And the Celtics have even more of an advantage, I think, in this regard because of how switchable they are. They just have so many big, um, versatile wings uh, from Marcus Morris to Jalen Brown to Jason Tatum um, to Semi Ojale to... Marcus Smart, frankly, um, up and down the roster, they have guys who are able to switch through multiple positions. And that just allowed them to not get scrambled, pretty much. Uh, they can switch so many things. And uh, Kevin O'Connor wrote actually a really good piece at The Ringer about how they were doing sort of like they were switching and re switching. Um, mm-hmm. So when they would have a switch to get like Terry Rozier switched on to Kevin Love in the post, right. before that entry pass could be made, they would immediately right. switch it again. They would um, switch
0: while the ball was in the air. Exactly. Like the so by the time they, by,
2: by the time he caught the ball, there was no mismatch there. Yeah, um, that's really smart. And that's good strategy, but it was just also great execution. There were a lot of things I think the Raptors wanted to do that they just weren't able to execute for any number of reasons that I'm sure we can get into later. Uh-huh. But um, the execution was just unbelievable on the Celtics part, and they they close out to the three point line I think as well as any team in the league and. Right. That was really huge like obviously the Cavs missed a ton of open threes mm-hmm. and that probably won't continue but the Celtics uh, I think had the best uh, three-point percentage defense in the mm-hmm. league this year and we're kind of conditioned in sort of modern basketball analysis to think that I think rightly that uh, opponent three-point percentage is not really a variable you can control for. Right, vari- and that it'll, it'll normalize over time. Right, yeah. and the variable you can control for is volume, basically. Attempts, but yeah. but in Brad Stevens' tenure in Boston, like they consistently rank in the top five in opponent three-point percentage. And I don't think that is an accident. I think there is something that's going on there where um, those guys d- defend on a string, they don't blow assignments, and they close out hard and by the end of that game honestly the Cavs look kind of spooked like they were passing up shots on the perimeter mm-hmm. and they were getting run off the arc and that that's just execution plain and simple
0: um I think yeah with LeBron though I think again no disrespect to the Celtics like they get full credit for everything they've done uh, and it's really really impressive what they're doing um But with LeBron, you always get the sense that he can elevate his game. Um, Particularly, you don't expect him to score 15 points on 5 of 16 shooting again with 7 turnovers. Um, And LeBron said after the game, he has zero level of concern um, for his team after Game 1. And if you really look at the history of LeBron in Game 1, he kind of like eases into series, right? Um, You know, in the Pacers series, they lost Game 1. In the Raptors series, the Cavaliers were trailing for the entire, like, regulation period and, and really they only won that game because the Raptors had just awful execution and shooting one of 18 down the stretch
1: LeBron shot terribly in that game too
0: yeah 12, 12 of 30 in that game and then of course LeBron turned it on and you know there's even if you go back to previous seasons like against OKC um, all those series he played against um, Chicago like LeBron usually likes to take one game to sort of measure up his opponent and so do you feel like LeBron was doing that and also do you feel like LeBron you know, will now come up with um, counters to what Boston was uh, doing to them in Game One.
1: I feel like, yeah, I definitely think maybe a little bit was him easing into it and him just having you know the kind of game he'll never have, he won't have again in this series. Like you know, right. if you know LeBron, he's not he's not gonna have two bad games in a series. That literally hasn't happened in like what eight years. Um, well, last time it happened in Boston. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, But the the one concern I'd say is like what can LeBron do, yeah, he can have a big game mm-hmm. and he can, well, I don't know, put up 40, 10 and 10. And you know, we saw in the Pacers series that LeBron can do those things, but if the rest of his roster, like if his supporting cast doesn't step up and they don't figure things out themselves, it might not matter. And I think that's the thing. Like people saw how great he was in the Raptors series. And it kind of, we went back to that narrative of like, well, no one in the East can beat a LeBron led team when LeBron's playing like that. And people forgot that just a couple of weeks earlier, a solid but not great Pacers team almost beat a LeBron-led team with him playing at an all-time level. So, like, yeah, LeBron will be better, but if, like, the Cavs role players Mm -hmm. and if um, everything about the Cavs is the team that they were for, like, 90 games before the Raptors series remains the same, then the Celtics can absolutely beat them even with LeBron playing at a certain level.
0: Yeah, and look, the Cavaliers, they shot 16 of 53 on uncontested shots, right? So the Cavaliers are usually a really good... Team in terms of you know they got a lot of great shooters, so you don't expect that to continue, especially when you know the guys like Jr. and Korver combine to shoot two or twelve on uncontested shots. But Wolf, like you said, man, the Celtics have done a really good job of focusing and taking away peripheral players. It happened um, in the it happened in the Sixers series, right? Like they the the Celtics neutralized a lot of the Sixers shooters that were red hot in the first round um and you know if there's one team that can really strictly execute a game plan where it's like you know what fine if lebron gets some of his points that's okay but we're going to take away everyone else's shots that seems like it would be the celtics
2: yeah and also i mean just going back to how versatile and switchable they are like a lot of the stuff the Cavs created against the raptors was off-ball stuff using their shooters as screeners for each other whether it was like korver and J.R. smith korver and kevin love and uh, the Raptors just couldn't keep up. They would kind of screen and re-screen until something broke down. And that's just way harder to do against the Celtics because they're more disciplined um, and they have more defensive versatility. So um, the Cavs are going to have to come up with some counters. I trust that they will. Um, I think for one thing, they'll, they'll try and mitigate those like second switches just by isolating those post-mismatches further away um, from the rest of the action mm-hmm. and make it harder for, for the Celtics to pull another defender over. And, I mean, from there, I think LeBron just kind of has to be, like, a little bit more locked in and aggressive um, because after they, they got shellacked in that first quarter, I feel like he kind of checked out of the game a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you, I mean, at the end of the day, like, they, they shot 3 of 16 on wide-open threes. So mm-hmm. you expect that to regress, and that'll have a big impact, I think, on how the Celtics defend them as well. Um, they might have to be a little bit more... Um, you know, conservative and not pack the paint the way that they were um, if the Cavs start lighting it up from downtown. So a lot of things could change between now and Game 2, or now in Game 3, I guess, um, that could change the dimension of the series.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that Brad Stevens said. You know, he said after winning Game 1 by 25 points, the Celtics have to play a lot better. And this is something that Stevens always says, but I think it's true in this case because you got to expect that the Cavaliers are going to counter with something – bigger and more respectable of a punch than what they saw here. But this is playing out very similar to um, the, the Pacers series in which, like, you know, the one thing that the Cavaliers just don't have a lot of is, like, young, fresh, athletic players. Um, there's a lot of veterans on this team, and especially as this, as the playoffs have gone on, they've cut out those guys um, that Colby Altman brought in at the trade deadline. And that's something that's really noticeable because, like, yes, they went – And traded Kyrie and they got two pieces and none of those two pieces and Jay Crowder uh, and Isaiah Thomas are, you know, even on the team currently. But then he also flipped those pieces for, you know, other players that were supposed to rejuvenate the team. But when you look at it right now... Ronnie Hood has been terrible throughout the playoffs. Like, refusing to enter the game, he, he apologized for but he should really be apologizing for averaging five points a game, shooting 12% from three. Uh, Larry Nance has been, you know, cut from the rotation a couple of these games. He's only averaged four points a game. Jordan Clarkson's averaging five points a game, shooting 32% from the field. Um, Chetty Osman was this sort of hyped-up guy that's like, oh, you're, the Cavs are going to finally bring over Chetty Osman and is, you know, you know, hair, uh, head and shoulders shampoo commercials. LeBron
1: does love Chetty, though.
0: He does love Chetty, but, I mean, like, Chetty's not even in the rotation. Jose Calderon it was sort of the backup point guard. Um, he's out of the rotation altogether, and he just can't play. He's way too old. And you look at it, like, this roster just looks awful. Like, they're still depending on the same pieces that David Griffin brought in.
1: Yeah, and that's why, like, when um, – look, I still think Cleveland wins a series, but that's one thing when – last night I saw a lot on Twitter and like people being like, you know, LeBron's gonna have a better game. Things are gonna be good. And this is what I was saying. Like, yeah, LeBron will be better, but like go down this roster. Mm-hmm. People are falling into the trap of what they looked like in the last series, right. which was the aberration. Like the larger sample size here is what this team has been for most of the season. And even post deadline, they had that like nice little three game run. And then things very quickly went back to the way they were before. Like there's just, well, you mentioned them not having a lot of like that kind of young athletic Talent. They don't have a lot of like above average NBA talent, period, whether we're talking young, old, for real. Yeah. Like go down this roster. They just don't. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I just I don't see I just don't see what the Cavs are gonna get out of some of these guys. Like Rodney Hood Mm -hmm. has not had a good playoff game yet. Like, this was the best thing. Like, yesterday, I think Mark Jackson on the broadcast said something about how, like, well, at least, you know, like, one silver lining is uh, Rodney Hood probably earned some more playing time with his performance. It's like, yo, is 11 points on 12 shooting possessions now what we're calling, like, a good—is that the bar Rodney Hood has set for himself?
2: That is the bar, yes. Yes. He looks he looks broken right now. He does,
1: and then there was even that segment that sequence last night where he asked out of the game because he was like winded or something, and it was probably the best stretch he had played these playoffs, which again very low bar. And he asked out of the game. They just have a lot of these guys that I don't think are impact players.
0: Yeah, and then if you contrast it to what the Celtics have on their side, Danny Ainge is obviously you know one of the best GMs um, in the NBA. He's really in contention to win Executive of the Year this season. And kind of can win that in a lot of years, but especially this year. I mean, the way he built the roster, uh, stocking the team with so many of these wings um, defenders that are gritty and tough. And, you know, the one guy you look at a lot is is Marcus Morris, right? Like he traded Avery Bradley for Marcus Morris, um, you know, last summer. He got an extra year worth of con- a cost-controlled player in Morris who had a longer contract than Bradley. Uh, he also picked up a second-round pick in the process. And now, if you look at who would be more useful in this series, we've seen Avery Bradley struggle against the Cavaliers. We, But, I mean, like, look at, if you look at Morris right now, he's kind of like the perfect kind of guy to guard LeBron. And I'm not saying he's going to shut down LeBron. Only but
1: Kawhi's better, maybe.
0: Only Kawhi. I mean, look, the stats, the stats don't lie at this point, right? Like, he's been really successful. And so, you know, Ainge has built a, a roster with a lot of wing players. And, you know, we'll find, like, you know, when you look at these young guys and the way they're succeeding the way he drafted, like, he clearly has a vision for how he wants his team to play. And it's being carried out, you know, by the head coach and by the players themselves. And, you know, the Celtics, they deserve a lot of credit for building this team.
2: Yeah, they do. And definitely having that many skilled wings has been a really important part of it. But the biggest thing to me has been Horford. Okay. Um, he, I think, deserved more credit than he got throughout the regular season for keeping that team afloat Mm -hmm. you know in the wake of all the injuries that it had and you know was definitely like a top three defensive player of the year candidate all year long but what he's done at the offensive end I think has been super super impressive in the playoffs and he's racking up a pretty impressive hit list through you know two and a bit rounds like Mm -hmm. wins his matchup with Giannis in the first round wins his matchup with Embiid in the second round Mm -hmm. and really won his matchup with Kevin Love convincingly in game one against he the Cavs. Him. And that that right there is like the biggest difference between what we saw in the Raptors series and what we saw in game one of the Celtics series because the Raptors just did not have anybody who could check Kevin Love on or off the ball, mm-hmm. and that killed them. It absolutely killed them. And in Horford, you have a guy who is extremely mobile, yeah. Um and can punish you in so many different ways at mm-hmm. the offensive end of the floor. Right. Right, Like he, he is able to keep up with Kevin Love and he can switch on to a smaller guy if yeah. the Cavs try and, you know, pull him pull him off of Love. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a fantastic helper. Uh, Great communicator too. Yeah, he really yeah, he, organizes that team because they switch absolutely. a lot. He's the anchor of that defense. So um, th- they're just not able to create that mismatch the way uh-huh. that they were last round. And then at the other end, like... Kevin Love's just getting his lunch taken frankly yeah. like uh Horford can you know he can drag him out to the three-point line he can bully him in the post yeah. and he can make plays from the elbows like he he's so incredibly versatile and I've been unbelievably impressed by the way that he's he's stepped it up um what uh, you, since the playoff started so
0: what, what do you think um, Lou does in, to counter uh, what Horford did in the first game which was you know he scored 21 points and stuff like that There's talks that, I mean, Lou tipped his hand saying that he might, you know, go back to Tristan Thompson. I thought that was strange, personally, because why would you give Brad Stevens time to prepare? But, I mean, do you think that's a solution if they put more Thompson out there?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably the move, honestly. Uh, Even before Lou said that, I would have said, like, uh, Horford has not had a lot of success with Tristan Thompson in the past. And I wonder if that maybe makes Boston adjust as well and start Aaron Baines, Mm -hmm. which, if you're the Cavs, I think is what you want right? Yeah. Like you'd rather the, the Celtics have to roll Baines out there and make it more of a rock fight. Um, and, and I think that's probably like to solve the Horford problem. That's the best adjustment that the Cavs can make.
1: Yeah. And Tristan, you know, to his credit has had success against Horford in the yeah, past. Definitely. And, you know, I mean, one thing you can point to is just the rebounding, you know, if you remember the first couple or last year was Horford's first year there, but, um, the knock on the Celtics a lot of times, and especially in the postseason in the Brad Stevens era was that they couldn't get a rebound and Horford was seen as part of that problem last year. Um, and so maybe you bring Tristan in and you just hope to kind of expose that again, especially when the Celtics don't have Banes in the game. But what I've kind of been fascinated about is that people look to whether it was the rebounding, the size, they look to Horford as a guy that maybe the other team could exploit in a way, you know, in the first round and Joe, I know you mentioned this, like if the, if the Bucks had gone to Giannis at center, what that would have meant? Well, what it meant was that the, um, the Celtics just had Horford, uh, at center and he abused Giannis. And then in the second round, it was Horford pulling Embiid away from the net that kind of neutralized Joel Embiid. Mm -hmm. And then in Game one of this series. He's kind of doing the same thing to Kevin Love, just abusing him even worse. So it's kind of interesting that, um, the certain weaknesses that people thought maybe teams could exploit of Horford is actually going the other way, and they're now making teams adjust to them, mm-hmm. right? And you see Tyloo having to talk about potentially starting Tristan Thompson again because now right. they're having to match up without Horford instead of the other way around.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, quickly though, we all I think we all agreed that the Cavaliers were heavily favored to win this series. Um, what what would, would you, what kind of odds would you give the Celtics to um, you know to pull off the upset here? cuz after game 1, I don't know. I am I'm, I'm sitting at like a f- solid 40%. That's yeah, what you're say. Yeah. That'd I think like, I'm
2: at like at least 45, yeah. inching inching close to 50%. Okay. Um because that was convincing um and they I mean, I guess they didn't look super convincing in that Buck series, but uh you know, they didn't win a road game. But man, did they look convincing in that Sixers series and yeah. They, I just think they've gotten better as the playoffs have gone along. Mm-hmm. I feel like they have a solid game plan to beat the Cavs. Right. And uh, they have the composure to do it. Like the, the We talked a lot about what their defense did, but their offense was also pretty
0: spectacular in that yeah. game one. A and lot of it was just running off makes uh, misses, though.
1: There was that, but there were...
2: I hate to keep comparing it to the Raptors series because I feel like the Celtics deserve to be commended, you know, on their own merits rather uh-huh. than, than um, just compared favorably to a team that had a poor showing last round. But the the composure that they showed when, like, their initial action didn't bear any fruit, they would kind of reverse a ball and flow seamlessly into their next action. And they would just keep probing and probing until they found a weak spot and they would exploit it. And... The Cavs' defense, you know, eventually would give way. That's what the Cavs' defense does. And yeah. the, I, I just thought the Celtics showed a lot of patience in steadily breaking them down and finding advantages and mismatches to attack. And they have, like, such a balanced attack and so many different ways that they can hurt you. They don't have that one bona fide star mm-hmm. that they can go to and run their offense through. But maybe that's almost an advantage for them. Yeah,
1: it's I- harder
0: to guard five on five. Yeah.
1: I think so much of it with the Celtics, too. And I know it's kind of become a joke, like how much praise Brad Stevens gets. But I think if there's one thing you can say about Brad Stevens, and his own players will say it, is that the level of preparation that that team has going into every game in the regular season, you know, let alone the postseason, right, is just on another level. And players will say, like um, uh, Marcus Morris and Marcus Smart told me this year that like they've never been in a situation where a coach prepares them mm-hmm. for a game the way Brad Stevens does. And they just know, like they know their plan a, they know their plan B. There's not a a single thing that could come up during a game where they're like, Whoa, this kind of took us for a loop. We didn't see this coming. And I think even something as simple as like the switches while the ball is just entering the post, you know, like it's little things like that where you look at it and be like, wait, why don't most teams do that? But I think it really does just come down to preparation.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, they're extremely prepared. Like They know exactly what they're trying to do, and they execute it about as well as you could expect. Uh, they're all on the same page. I think they're a team that communicates as well as any team in the league. And um, I think as far as making in-game adjustments, like there aren't many coaches that you would trust more than Brad Stevens to do that. So mm. if they come out in game two and get punched in the mouth in the first quarter— uh, I I don't have any doubt that that team is going
0: to be able to respond. I look forward to uh, next week when we when we switch up after the Cavaliers <laughs> win two and we'll be like, well, oh well, wow! Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's, entire, are it's entirely possible. Is like,
1: Brad we, Stevens we could, on the hot seat? <laughs> <we could. laughs>
2: no, I mean these things change fast in the playoffs, right? We all know that. We've all experienced it. There's a, mm-hmm. definitely a whiplash effect. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's why I think we're all still saying that the Cavs are the favorite in this series. Yeah, but. It's close. Even even coming into it, I thought the Celtics had a pretty decent chance. I said yeah. uh, on last week's pod, you know, when um, it seemed like suddenly the Cavs had figured it out. They were only a week removed from that, you know, borderline disastrous series against the Pacers. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that they had figured everything out or cured all their ills. And they're going to be in tough, you know, yeah. b- because they there are clear weaknesses on that roster and playing against a team that doesn't make mistakes is going to make things, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon them to execute, so.
0: Uh, Speaking of a team that makes mistakes and has a difficult time executing, the uh, Toronto Raptors um, had a very eventful week, starting with losing by 35 points in Game 4 to get swept by the Cavaliers for the second time in a row, and three years in a row, um, you know, the Raptors then fired their head coach Dwayne Casey who um earlier in the week had won the coaches award for um coach of the year so the coaches picked that one they voted Casey uh and you know it was a very jarring decision I think um it was a very emotional one especially in the city of Toronto because um Dwayne Casey has always been the, uh, just such a respectful man and he's just a he's helped build a lot of the the culture and stability that Toronto has sort of thrived off of in recent years. Um, And, you know, while it's understandable that, you know, he lost his job because uh, the Raptors couldn't get over the top in the playoffs, like, he's not the only one to blame. And I think the Raptors, I think there's a a conversation right now between whether or not he was scapegoated and whether or not, you know, he deserved to lose his job. And I feel like there is some middle ground to be found there. And, um, Cash, I mean... When you heard the news that Dwayne Casey was fired, you probably weren't surprised, were you?
1: No, I wasn't surprised. I thought, you know, I thought best case scenario for Casey after what happened was 50-50, mm-hmm. whether he'd keep his job or not. Uh, once the report started trickling out that the Raptors or Masai was leaning towards firing, I, I, at that point I just expected it was going to happen. Because um, if there's one thing you can say about Masai Jerry's Raptors, like there are no leaks. Right. Leagues don't get out. So once that came out that he was leaning, I just didn't see a way where something like that could come out if it wasn't about to happen. Yeah. Um. And sure enough, it happened. But I just don't think you can be surprised. Look, it, it's a weird thing to say a guy that won as much as Dwayne Casey did in the last five years and just won 59 games and got the one seed. Mm-hmm. It's weird to say he deserved to be fired. So I don't know if that's the right language. But I do think there are examples in pro sports when – a coach could have done a good job for the most part yeah. and it was still time to move on. And I kind of think that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really respect about what Masai did is I think so many times uh, executives in sports, and we see it in the NBA all the time, they make decisions based on the optics. Yeah. And so they'd look at this and be like, you know, I probably want another coach in here, and I think there's a better option. And I think we've reached our ceiling with this guy, but he's gonna win coach of the year. And I can't I can't fire him in a year. He wins coach of the year. And what I like about Masai is he kind of bites the bullet and just goes with what he truly believes. Mm-hmm. And if he's gonna take some some flack for it, because it does look terrible, and you know, all the coaches are gonna come out and support Dwayne and yeah, yeah, that yeah. usual shtick but I like that Masai has the backbone to do it because at the end of the day, if you want to win championships, you've got to make those tough decisions Yeah, and you have to make the decisions that a lot of people sometimes won't like. Mm
0: -hmm. Wolf on, you wrote a, um, a fairly emotional piece, two really emotional pieces about the Raptors this week, um, that you can read on the score. Um, but specifically the one about Casey, um, you sort of concluded in a cynical way by saying the Raptors can now lose in a different way. Like, um, I mean, it's kind of true, right? It's hard to fault any one specific person for losing um, to LeBron because you're expected to lose to LeBron. It's just that eventually, over time, you get tired of it and you have to do something new and this is something new. Yeah, I mean, there's that old kind of
2: overused Samuel Beckett quote. Uh, It's like, ever tried, ever failed, never mind, try again, fail again, fail better. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of been the story of the Raptors the last few seasons as they try to scale the Eastern Conference mountain in the era of LeBron James, with the exception that they haven't really been failing better. And I think that ultimately is what did Casey in. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that a new coach is going to help them fail better. Right. But like I wrote, you know, it will at least help them fail differently. And I think they had to try. And on the one hand, it is kind of unfair to Dwayne Casey because he has done such a fantastic job. And he did kind of run into a really difficult matchup. And mm-hmm. also, you know, there were extenuating circumstances that were beyond his control. You know, whether that was the, the players that could have mitigated the matchup disadvantage a little bit, just totally no showing in the series surge cough, cough, Serge Ibaka. Yeah. Um, or, you know, DeMar DeRozan, no showing from games two to four. Yeah. Um, Jonas Valanciunas just deciding to gank like nine layups at the end of game game one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know a lot of the stuff that you can't lay on Dwayne Casey's shoulders specifically. At the same time, he did not have a good series, and frankly And frankly, it's not the first time that he's had a bad series coaching in the playoffs. Uh, not even close. Mm-hmm. And for as much good work as he's done in Toronto, I think eventually you have to wear that. Right, of course. And that doesn't all fall on him. There are you know the the Raptors' three best and longest tenured players have been there through all of this and have been culprits in their playoff failures in various capacities at various points in time. And those guys deserve to wear some of it too. And maybe they will. Maybe one or more of those guys end up getting traded. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of them do. But the bottom line is it's a lot easier to replace a coach than it is your three best players.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that certainly seems like what the Raptors are going to do. Um, I mean, with, going back to Casey, though, it's just like he – did a great job in raising the team's expectations to this point where they're now expected to compete against LeBron. And again, like if you set your whole season on beating LeBron, you have to truly be an elite team because most teams don't even get to that chance. Um, And the Raptors did do that. But I mean, after he set that bar for himself, it was like, can he be the one that gets you over this bar? And it's like, no one coach is going to even Brad Stevens, as much love we, we gave him in the first segment, like, even Brad Stevens is not going to do that but i mean like if you look at the raptors like and see how sort of unprepared how undisciplined they were defensively um as compared to what the pacers did and what the celtic's did it, just speaking about those three rosters right now like the raptors talent isn't that much below or e- below at all like what the pacers threw out there or what the celtic's are currently throwing out there without their their main stars and um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to not look at that as a coaching thing. It's hard to not look at, you know, Kevin Love killing CJ Miles in the post like 500 different possessions in a row, or LeBron getting switched on to CJ Miles every single time with no solution and LeBron going to the rim every time. Or you look at randomly in a game that's still somewhat manageable, you throw in, you know, Lucas Nagara cold right off the bench, you know. St- And he goes in there and he gives up 10 straight points, basically. And and, and the whole Game 4 is a wrap at that point. Like, you just cannot have these moments. And you can't have moments where you're getting killed off-ball by the same split-cut action. You know, like, some of it is on the players for not executing. But, like, also a lot of that is on coaching. So, I don't think there was any, like... I think Masai was justified in looking for another coach. But in terms of who the next guy is going to be, it's going to be a little bit difficult right now. Because it seems like the Raptors' top target you know, according to reports, is Mike Budenholzer, who was last with the Hawks. Um, and now there's sort of this, like, little battle going on between the Bucks and the Raptors for Boonholzer's services. Um, and then, you know, past that, you don't really hear other names. You just hear, you know, the Raptors' assistant coaches, Rex Kalamian uh, and Nick Nurse, you know. It's, it doesn't seem like a huge change. And also in the pitch to Boonholzer according to Woj, uh, Masai's pitch was we're going to bring back the same core that won 59 games. And so you have a lot to work with, but that doesn't sound like they're going to actually change the core. And so it seems like just a coaching change cash. Would that be enough for the Raptors?
1: Based on the fact they just got swept, it's hard to say that that would be enough to kind of take them um, over the edge, whether you think the edge is just beating LeBron, getting through all whatever it is. I I don't think you can just change coaches and expect that to be the difference. Um, but I do think if, you know, if that's what Wojnar's reporting is is accurate, that that's kind of how Maasai's pitching it to Budenholzer, then I think that kind of gives you a window into how Masai views it. And that I think Masai views this team as they had enough. And I, look, I'm going to sit here and say, I think they had enough to beat this Cavs team. They, to me, should have at least been in a, a dogfight of a series with this Cavs team. Yeah. And... You know, whether it's a preparation thing, whether it's an ability to kind of adjust on the fly and not... You know, one thing I think you can say about the this kind of era of the Raptors over the last five years of getting to the playoffs is... They always seem, and I I realize that the playoffs are about adjustments from game to game, Mm -hmm. but the Raptors always seem to be, like, a step behind their opponent. It's a
0: very reactive team. Right. And they've changed their starting lineup a lot. Yes. But But, in, like, not an anticipatory way.
1: Right. They just always seem a step slow in the playoffs where, like, it takes, whether it's a game one loss, you know, or then they finally get over that game one monkey. But then, you, you know, this year in the first round, the way they looked in those two games in Washington, there always seems to be these, like, Moments of tension in a playoff series for the Raptors, where Dwayne Casey has to sit at the podium and explain why they now had to adjust to the like, oh, here's how we righted the ship because we adjusted to this that right. we just what like it's like you didn't see it coming yeah, or you it's didn't... A lack
2: of anticipation, right? I think.
1: And you know, I go back and I realize this, you know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe you can look at this as a small mistake, but I go back to that first year the Raptors got back to the playoffs, and Terrence Ross steals the ball from I believe Paul Pierce or Joe... I can't remember who it was, maybe mm-hmm. Darren Williams and gets the Raptors the final possession of the game, down one in game seven. And I don't know if you guys remember this. Dwayne Casey drew up the play on the
0: wrong side of the floor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And
1: look, I'm not going to say that's the reason they didn't score on that play, but, you know, what I'm trying to say is that those kinds of mistakes, whether it's lack of preparation or just like the very fine details, those kinds of mistakes you can get by with Mm -hmm. when you are the feel-good 48-win Raptors that maybe aren't supposed to be there. But when you are the 59-win, one-seeded Raptors who are touted as and believed in by their general manager as the team that's going to end LeBron James's run, you can't afford those kinds of mistakes anymore. And I think just eventually um, the accumulation of those things every single year in the playoffs is what did Dwayne Casey in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's totally fair. And it's funny because if you'd have asked me even a couple years ago, I probably would have told you that there really isn't that much of a qualitative difference between regular season and playoff basketball. And I've started to change my mind on that a little bit. The Raptors have almost single-handedly made, yeah. my change, made me change my mind on that. <laughs> the Raptors are the ultimate case. <laughs> um, and, you know, that goes that, that goes to both their personnel and their coaching staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the the in-game adjustments are are so much easier to get away with in the regular season than they are in the playoffs when, like, there's so much importance placed on one game, one quarter, one possession. Yeah. And if you're not ready to anticipate what the other team's next move is, um, you're getting left behind. And I think we've seen that happen one too many times, I think, to the Raptors in the playoffs. And, again, like, I I think regardless of whether they get a better coach than Dwayne Mm Casey… I feel like it is important for them to just kind of have a different voice and for there to be a different vibe and a different feeling like if they're running it back again with the same roster and the same coaching staff I feel like that just makes it that much more difficult to generate any kind of internal belief that this year is going to be different and you know to to your point about about keeping the core intact I don't know that they have another choice because at this point in time I, I don't know that the guys on their roster who they would conceivably trade
0: Mm -hmm.
2: have anywhere close to as much value around the league as they have to the Raptors right
0: Right. now. So, but I mean like, you know, maybe they don't move Lowry and DeRozan for the reasons you mentioned, like, you know, they have more value to the Raptors than they do probably elsewhere, especially in the case of Lowry. But then do you perhaps pivot and try to, um, you know, aggregate some of your current prospects and some of your bigger contracts to match salary And try to get that third guy. Because the Raptors have always lacked that third guy. They've tried many times. I mean, they tried Jonas. um, You know, he just didn't really cut it defensively. Although Jonas is really coming along nicely. Um, They tried Damari Carroll, which obviously failed. They tried Serge Ibaka, which failed. I mean, you know, maybe they try again with the the third guy. Around Lowry and DeRozan. And, you know, maybe that changes it. But, I mean, I I don't know. I, I think... If the Raptors are just going to stop with, hey, we're going to get this new coach in here and we're going to play differently, then like, I don't think that's enough. But you know, I don't also don't think that the Raptors are going to stop just there. I think even though the reports suggest that they're going to bring back the same core, I, I think it depends on what they define as the core. Because if the core is Lauren DeRozan, then that's one thing. If the core is the young guys on the team, then, yeah, maybe they pivot away from them and then give – some of the younger guys more of an opportunity uh, because that's really the two scenarios you can go with, but you just can't stay static.
1: No, I think the fact that Masai made the decision that he made, like Mm -hmm. we were saying when he knew what the optics would be and the season they were just coming off of, I think you make that move when, you know, you're kind of closer to going all in and win now than if you're going the other way. So I think if there's going to be a move or at least if there's going to be an attempted move, it would be Masai swinging big. And, and trying to take this team to the next step.
0: And he has the pieces to do it. Like, he you does. have all those young guys on really reasonable salaries. You have big contracts that you can match money with. And guys like JV, who, you know, as much as he has limitations in the modern NBA, he had a fantastic year, and he's really improved. And he's shown a continued aptitude for improvement, and, and he's healthy. And so there's a lot of things the Raptors could do. And, you know, maybe Masai Swing's big. Maybe he does. Um,
2: on... The other hand, maybe what he really wants is to see if this team, as it's currently constructed, can actually be better with a different coach. But, I mean, and like, really when, why did he do out. that last summer, then? I honestly couldn't tell you. Okay, I, I think a fire. lot of us expected Dwayne Casey to get fired last summer. That yeah. seemed, especially when Masai came out and started talking about culture ha- how they needed the culture reset. Like That seemed to a lot of people, I think, to be... Um, you know, a bit of an omen that that the coaching staff was um, going to get replaced. And instead, it was um, more of like a, just like a creative reimagining of mm-hmm. the team and what it could be. And to the immense credit of that entire coaching staff, they executed it extremely well. It just didn't carry over. Uh, and they weren't able to sustain it against, you know, their number one competition and the team that they have spent the entire year thinking about trying to beat. mm mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that is why the axe ultimately fell when it did, because it was like this was their card to play. They, they spent the year completely reinventing themselves, playing a different brand of basketball, using basically the, you know, functionally the same roster um, to execute a completely different kind of game plan. And at the end of the day, like they still came up short, and they came up short because of how the players performed when it matters most. Yeah. And they came up short because of how the coaching staff performed when it mattered most. And I, I, like I said before, like it's just easier to make a coaching change than it is to make a significant roster move. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a significant roster move isn't going to happen. But for now, this was like the easiest and most logical move to make. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a busy summer for the Raptors. It already has been, um, you know, Masai said at that press conference, you know, put it on me. And, yeah, this is going to be the time where, you know, it is put on Masai because this is the first time where Masai is in the spotlight for a, something controversial uh, where it could go one of two ways because Masai is almost universally received praise and rightfully so for what he's done in Toronto. He's legitimized the franchise. They've gone to the playoffs in every single year he's here. It's been great in terms of what Masai has done, but in terms of making that next step, that hardest step of building a, a taking a good team in the regular season and making it into a great playoff team, you know that's gonna be that's gonna be his challenge this summer, and and he's really um, taking off the buffer of being able to have Dwayne Casey absorb some of the blows, and now it's really on Masai, so um, it, it's gonna be a brave brave time for him for sure.
1: It's also let's not forget this is going to be the first time. That Masai Ujiri hires a coach. That's
0: right, in In his career.
1: He inherited George Carl. He inherited Dwayne Casey.
0: Yeah, and both times they won coach of the year and uh, got fired later that year, although he didn't fire um, George Carl, but that's how it ended up. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break right here. Um, We are going to move over to the Western Conference and devote most of make or miss to that. So um, we're going to take a quick break and come back. Back to Pound the Rock as always. It's your friendly reminder to support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Um, you know, and beyond that, maybe tell your friends about the podcast. Maybe grab their phones and, and and you know subscribe to the show on their Podcatcher and hit five stars while you're at it. Um, anything um, that you can do to support the podcast is very appreciated. So we we'll make we're moving on to our make or miss league segment also rest i mean it, it's honestly really sad that, that so many so much of this podcast was built on doing casey's um Casey-isms, his catchphrases uh and now he's gone but uh, at least he'll be remembered in this podcast and both pound the rock and also make or miss league um and so usually we go around the league with the segment but um because we didn't talk too much about the the western conference finals we we're going to know largely devoted to that so first one make or miss clint capella needs to win his matchup with draymond green for the rockets to upset the warriors
2: i think i'll go miss on that one just because that that doesn't really feel like a one-on-one matchup to me um i think clint capella is going to be really really important but to me it's less about winning his matchup with draymond than it is just his ability to kind of hang with steph on switches Um, and, you know, be able to protect the rim, like be a a really effective rim runner um, who's able to collapse the Warriors' defense a little bit with his vertical spacing and, you know, be just like that ideal uh, lob-catching pick-and-roll partner with James Harden. I think there are a lot of ways that he can have his fingerprints on this series, but it it doesn't feel to me like it's going to be a one-on-one matchup against Draymond that he needs to win.
1: Yeah, I I pretty much agree with all of that. I think you can make the argument he needs to outplay Draymond, I guess, but I yeah, I that's... just don't see it enough of a one-on-one matchup. But yeah, if we're talking well, I mean, just... They're going to be guarding each other a lot. Yeah, if, if we're going straight up like he's got to outplay Draymond, then I'll go with a make. Okay. Um, but not just because of his interactions with Draymond, you know, like his ability to switch defensively on the perimeter against Steph. Whether Steph's healthy enough to take Clint off the dribble is something that is worth monitoring because Steph didn't do it as often again mm-hmm. when Biggs were switched on to him in the Utah series. So I think there are a lot of things that Clint Capella could do to swing this matchup um, but I don't necessarily think just the interactions in his matchup with Draymond are those things
0: okay um yeah I mean I guess I probably should have worded this better but yeah I mean outplaying Draymond I think is gonna be pretty important for them because like if Capella can consistently dominate the offensive glass if Capella um, can put Draymond into foul trouble a little bit, like that will change the series a lot because it's like, you know, the Warriors front court is already quite thin. And as much as it's been nice to see come on Looney, um, you know, break free from that, like morass of just random warrior centers. The Warriors have so many weird random centers on their roster, like Zaza, Jordan bell, um, you know, Damien Jones, Dam- <laughs> Damien Jones. That was <laughs> just the naming most everybody, <laughs> but JaVale McGee, JaVale ja- 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 does not count um but david um, west d- yeah that's what i mean they have so, like half their team is just these weird david that- lee
2: is floating around out there somewhere yeah. just like, ready <laughs> to take the court no he's just like on tour with uh Wozniacki <laughs> yeah. at this point i think yeah, david
0: lee's living the life shout out david lee yeah um, um
2: but what one thing i'll say like do you think they'll stick draymond on capella or do you feel like they'll they'll put durant on capella and ooh. and have have draymond guard like I don't know, like P.J. Tucker, like a non-scorer where he can kind of be a free safety, basically. Which is
1: a lot of times how Draymond's at his best, right? Where Draymond can just kind of be like the roamer. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, the Sixers tried to do that with Ben Simmons, like stick him on Marcus Smart, and it didn't really work because Simmons obviously is like not the off-ball defensive terror that Draymond is. Um, But I feel like that could be be an interesting wrinkle.
0: Well, okay, that leads nicely to the next question here. Uh, Make or miss. Um, Taking Draymond Green out of the game should be the Rockets' priority.
1: I think... I think getting the Warriors to play a more traditional lineup and okay. putting a big on the floor should be their top priority, whether that means um, Capella doing this, however it happens. Um, again, now, if you're talking getting into Draymond Green's head and hoping he gets himself to spell, you know, that's a different story. But
0: That's something I feel like Chris Paul is very interested in doing and yep. is probably currently scheming to yep. do as such.
1: But But yeah, I'd say... The Rockets and Capella obviously plays into this, if the Rockets can force Steve Kerr to play one of their traditional big men, which mm-hmm. is not good, and kind of take away from the Hamptons five death lineup, I think right. that should be the Rockets' priority. Right.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going amiss also just because I feel like to effectively defend the Warriors, what you really want is to have Draymond be the guy who's like taking threes. And obviously you want to limit what he can do as a playmaker. But if he is the guy who is forced to sort of initiate the Warriors offense or forced to finish it by taking jump shots, I think that that's a win. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I mean, I don't know. What would
0: what would taking Draymond out of the game really look like to you? Just like neutralizing him, you know, like um, putting f- him into foul trouble, um, you know, it's because it's... it's- like, because what they can do early in the game is try to hunt those mismatches against Draymond and try to use their guards that are very good at baiting fouls to put fouls on Draymond or just involve Draymond in as many actions as possible. Because without Draymond in the backcourt or in, in the frontcourt, like, the, the the Warriors really have no chance of guarding um, the Rockets. And so, like, that – I mean, I, I'm not saying that they don't have a chance overall. It's just without Draymond, they really would struggle um, and Draymond makes such a big difference. I, I don't know. Maybe the Rockets should target him early in games. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to
2: that. Like, if yeah. if there's one of those guys that could realistically be neutralized, it's probably him. I don't, I don't know how much hope you have of neutralizing Curry and Durant. So, yeah, um, maybe it makes more sense to hone in on Draymond as that like ancillary playmaker, and if you can take him out of the game, then you limit what the Warriors can do.
0: Yeah, that's, like, that's essentially what the Cavs did, right, in the 2016 finals. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one. Uh, make or miss, the Warriors need to attack Chris Paul on defense and try to turn it into a solo act with Harden. And so, um, CP3 is, if you would, it's odd because Chris Paul is a really good defender. But if you look at the rest of what the Rockets and throw out there, he is kind of like a, a, the weak link in a in a sense because he's the smallest guy on the floor, and we've seen it throughout the playoffs. Like Chris Paul defensively can do it, but like against bigger players, especially now that he's older, he's just not the same. And the Warriors are pretty much bigger than Chris Paul at almost every position. Even at point guard, Steph can shoot over Chris Paul. So I don't know. Do, should they try to take Chris Paul out of the game? I still think if you're looking to target
1: anyone, you know, on defense on that team, it's still Harden. Okay. Um, and even that, like, you know, we've talked about Harden kind of being stronger than people give him credit for. It. and mm-hmm. So what do you, it's not like you can post him up.
0: Like, right. You he, just have to involve him in screen. Right. You get to involve yeah.
1: him in a lot of actions and hope you just kind of get him confused, which he is prone to do defensively. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I still, I still, even though there's better defensive options, obviously on this team, the Rockets are very deep and versatile defensively. I still don't think if you're targeting Chris Paul defensively that that's a good, like a sound strategy because I do think he's still too smart to well, be game plan like that.
2: Yeah. On the other hand, if Chris Paul is guarding Curry and there and you run the Curry Durant pick and roll are like you're forcing the Rockets to make a choice and what they usually do is they switch everything. Mm-hmm. But if they switch Chris Paul onto Durant that is death. Like yeah. this guy was raining jumpers over Anthony Davis. Like he's not even going to feel Chris Paul. Like I don't know if that's going to be a viable strategy for Houston. So maybe you force them to adjust. Maybe they have to hedge and and try and recover and get over the screen. Um, or maybe they then have to switch Paul off of Curry, right? Like stick right Trevor Ariza on on Curry, so that you can switch that action, but then like, and not you put CP3 and not either. get burnt Clay I don't, or Draymond. I don't know. I mean, you yeah. find I you could, find a better place to I hide. I could him. see
1: them, if they're going to hide CP, I could see them hiding him on Draymond. Yeah. Just because, again, like, as smart and as effective as Draymond is offensively right. because of his playmaking and the way he sees the floor, yeah. you can hide guys yeah. who yeah. you maybe don't trust as much defensively on him because he's not going to, like, take you one on one. You know, you don't have or, to game plan for him. I, I, or I, 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 would I would hide Paul on
2: Clay, maybe. Like, okay. CP could chase him around, right? Sure. Like, I, I don't think he would necessarily lose him. And again, Clay is not, like, he, he can post up and like he, he would. He could definitely shoot over. Oh, Chris Mark Paul. Mark Jackson will definitely tell you Clay can post up. Man. I mean, he can shoot over Chris Paul. Like, like, sure, but yeah, yeah. I think you'd rather live with that than you know any other number of really terrible options uh, if you're the Rockets playing D against the Warriors offense. So yeah. Okay,
0: next one. Um, Green, KD, Andre, and Clay is the best possible defensive combo you could dream up. to guard Harden so I saw this
1: and I actually have one that I think can compete with that the problem is they all play with James Harden because I was going to say like PJ Tucker Lupa Uh, Mute Trevor Ariza seriously yeah um I think the like collection of switchable defensive forwards that the Rockets have would be a pretty ideal matchup to to throw at Harden as well
2: yeah disrespecting the Celtics man (laughs) yeah that's right man
0: come on we just (laughs) talked about the Celtics we just talked about them what would Marcus Smart be doing to James Harden? Probably just drawing draw- an offensive foul yeah. and then celebrating the game because he flopped.
2: <laughs> just getting all up in his beard. Um, that happened earlier this it. year.
0: They, the, the, the Rockets blew like a 20-point lead.
2: 26-point lead, yeah. Smart drew two, two offensive fouls on Harden in the last nine seconds, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's the best. I can't think off the top of my head of what the best uh, foursome would be to take Harden out of the game, but you can't really complain about those four guys. Yeah. Um, they're all extremely long, extremely quick. And like the, the Rockets have thrived so much of this year just by creating mismatches, like running, pick and roll and getting the switch and then basically letting Harden or Chris Paul go to work in isolation. It's going to be really hard to do against these guys. Yeah. Like they're not super exploitable in isolation. So where, like, which mismatch are you looking to exploit or are you maybe trying to cut out a little bit of the ISO ball that's defined you for so much of the season and, you know, come up with a, a different approach where um, you're getting more off-ball movement and getting other guys
0: involved? Um, last one, make or miss, home court advantage will swing the series.
1: I'm going to say miss. Okay. I don't think, like, if the Rockets are going to beat the Warriors, I think there'll be a lot of basketball reasons, many of which we touched on, the, like, this week in the last couple weeks. That they would beat them, and I just, I think the Warriors are too good, and you know, no disrespect to the Rockets crowd, but I don't think it's like the most intimidating place to play. Again, I just think between that and the uh, as good as the Warriors are, I don't think that'll be what decides this series.
2: Mm. I agree. I think w- when you have two teams this good, I just think that it, not that it doesn't matter, but I don't think it is going to swing the series. Right, it's okay. important, right? Like if the Rockets wanted to have a chance of winning the series I think getting that number one seed actually was really important for them but I also think this is going to be a series where each of those teams wins a road game at some point in time mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think home court is what it's going to come down to at the end of the day
1: I will say that, I mean I'm just going to throw a question in there but
0: okay if, yeah, yeah, go ahead
1: if the Warriors do wash yeah. the Rockets in this series oof, do you think that will essentially like squash any hope Any team has while this team is together, like that, while this Warriors team is together, that they can beat them because again, 65 win Rockets Mm -hmm. as perfectly built for the modern era and to beat the Warriors as you can be. If that team gets washed by the KD area, era Warriors, does any team have a shot?
0: Honestly, I feel like, uh, when we talk about Cleveland and when we talk about Golden State, we like almost willingly forget how dominant they are in their track record to be like, well, this latest team is going to challenge them. And like the Rockets have a lot of like Raptors parallels. I think the Rockets are generally more respectable, but like they've famously had playoff meltdowns. They have famously had great regular seasons. uh, And then their, their stars shrink in the playoffs. Um, And you know, it's been, the Rockets has have been for the most part, the main contender to the Warriors. Like there's more contenders in the West. So um, it's not just the Rockets, but like the Rockets have faced the Warriors a lot, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, just like the Raptors have faced the Cavaliers a lot in the in the in the East, and like you know, the storyline's kind of similar. And it, it, I'm with the I'm at the point with the Rockets where like you know what I have to see it to believe it as well. And I know the Rockets changed their team a lot. They obviously got Chris Paul; it's a big thing. But like you know, yeah, I mean, if if this doesn't work, like yeah, it's it's gonna be shocking. But I mean, at the same time, like. The Warriors are the Warriors. Like we kind of we can talk about them being a generational team, and then somehow still be surprised if one other if they beat another team. Like we sh- we shouldn't be right. Like yeah. we shouldn't be surprised if they beat the the Rockets. Just no. like the Cavaliers, our fans are not surprised whatsoever that they swept the Raptors.
2: I, I also don't think that it's going to be like that's it. That's the end of hope. You know, nobody's sure. going to care about next season. Like every year that's kind of feels like the narrative. The Warriors are just invincible. Who's Mm going to beat them? How could anyone beat this team? And over the course of the season, people kind of forget that a little bit and talk themselves into other teams and other stories and other possibilities. Like next year, people are going to talk themselves into the Celtics with the healthy Kyrie and Gordon Hayward. And they're going to talk themselves into whatever the 76ers are next year. And the Warriors, I think, you know, until somebody beats them, are going to remain the presumptive favorites for good reason. But there will always be teams that show that glimmer of promise. I think that people can talk themselves into, and the Rockets have been that team this year. And we'll
0: we'll see how they come out. Yeah. No. The time when we really feel the inevitability of the Warriors is when they get Anthony Davis. <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to take another quick break and come back with our playoff flashback. <laughs> um we are gonna do our playoff flashback and today we are looking back to james harden's first really public playoff meltdown which happened in 2015 um game five the uh, the rockets were down 3-1 james harden actually had just come off a 45 point game to take a game off the eventual championship warriors Uh, And then game five, it was expected that, you know, maybe the Rockets will put up a fight. And they were reasonably close. Like, it was less than a 10-point game um, heading into the fourth quarter. But James Harden, that game, had shot 2 of 11 and had 13 turnovers, which set an NBA record uh, for most turnovers in the playoffs. And that kind of kicked off a trend of, like, James Harden just has these inexplicable games in the playoffs where he is just comically awful. And comically absent and he's I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's happened a couple times, but that was the first one. Um and so Cash and Wolf on, do you guys have any memories of this game? Uh and, you know, what do you guys think about Harden's strange propensity to to disappear in, in occasional games?
1: So I was gonna say that the reason I don't have like vivid memories of this game is cause these like random Harden experiences we'll call them in the playoffs have kind of just blended together for me in my memory where like, I'll be like, wait, was um, what I'm thinking of? Was that when he did it against the Spurs or that year against the Thunder or that year against the, like they all kind of blend together. Right. Um. So I'd have to go with my, my most vivid memory of this series. And of that performance was the little beakers.
0: Yeah. Little B man. All year he beefed with James Harden because James Harden started doing the cooking dance and all year little B was like, Hey man, I'm going to curse you. Everyone was like, oh, come on. That's just a joke. It's not a joke. 13 turnovers, man. 13. That's so many. T- <laughs> that's like a whole game's worth of turnovers for a team.
2: Yeah. It's wild that they were in that game basically until the fourth quarter too with him putting forth the performance that he had. But that team was so weird. That team was uh, the, fact that, the fact that the fact that was a conference final team is pretty insane because Dwight Howard was their second best player, and he was okay at that point. And then the rest of the guys they had were like, kind of low-end role players you know yeah. they had like demo and josh smith i think and Jason is hurt Terry. Too. yeah maybe josh, josh, like they, they, they,
1: josh smith whose jumpers against the clippers were the only reason they were even in that series that's what i was yeah. gonna say like
2: harden had kind of a playoff meltdown in that game six against the clippers he had a terrible game and ended up getting benched in the fourth quarter and that was how the Rockets came back to win that game um and then yeah in that in that Game five against the Warriors, which they were never going to win that series anyway, which is, I think, why nobody really cared that much. Like, him melting down against the Spurs when Kawhi was out was kind of inexcusable because they should have won that series. But they were never going to beat the Warriors, so who really cares at the end of the day? And at the end of that game, it was like they were down six or seven points trying to get back into it. And Josh Smith is on the floor just launching (laughs) three-pointers with, like, 20 seconds on the shot clock. It and, worked in the previous series. Man. Yeah, I mean, if you know, you live by Josh Smith and you die by Josh Smith, and they died by him in that game. That's what not, I remember about it. Not the only team to die by Josh Smith, man. No, um, so Detroit. Yeah. Detroit still paying his contract.
1: <laughs> Those self inflicted Josh Smith wounds.
2: Yeah, they. they I, I don't know when. When did he come off their books?
0: He. They stretched him out for like. That was like one of the first moves of Van Gundy's tenure, right? He was like, "I'm going to use the stretch provision." I think it was like five years. So I think this is the last year they're paying Josh Smith his contract. But uh, ironically, Josh Smith's contract is probably one of the best value deals on the, the-, the- <laughs> roster right now. Um, even though he's not playing for them. Um, he's at least not providing negative value. Yeah. And this is the thing with-, with Harden, right? Like, we can't ignore the fact that he has these strange games where he does meltdown. And, like to his credit, he hasn't had any of them so far in the playoffs, And that's what the Rockets fans need to be hoping that, like, you know, he doesn't even do this once. Because if he. The margin of error against the Warriors is so, so slim. You cannot have Harden just have one of these games where he punts the whole game um, where he has done in the playoffs before. And, like, you know, Cash, you mentioned it. OKC in 2013, um, you know, he had a game where he had 10 turnovers and shot 4 or 12. The Actually, the uh, the Rockets somehow won that game, which is just inconceivable. Um, but, I mean, like, you know, last year against Spurs, famously in Game 6, 2 of 11 shooting, 6 turnovers, lost by 39 points, no Kawhi Leonard. That was in Houston. Like, it, it was just so ugly. And so, um, hopefully James Harden doesn't have one of these meltdowns again. But if you ask Warriors fans, they I think they vividly remember this game. And I think they're probably counting on at least one of these games um, in the Western Conference Finals to be a repeat um, of You know this meltdown because it's weird. Because like Harden, like in this game, for example, like he was coming off a forty-five point game. So like Harden has had series where he's been phenomenal. Even in the Spurs series, he had great games. He had a game where he had thirty-nine points, but then he follows it up with these inexplicable performances.
2: Isn't that just reflective of his kind of high variance approach to basketball, though?
0: Yeah, I mean he takes he takes a lot of bad shots. He makes a lot of them. You
2: know, if if so much of your game is predicated on just taking step back threes, I feel like it's kind of inevitable that you're going to have a few clunkers. So that's just sort of baked into the expectations for this team as a whole, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Also, I feel like, um, not to be like cop out for Harden, but I do feel like there's a long list of superstars in NBA history who have had plenty of bad playoff games. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why we end up fixating. Like, I don't know if some are just more spectacular than others.
0: Spectacular 13 turnovers. It is
1: for sure. It is. But I'm saying in general, like Harden's playoff struggles when really, when you go back and look at it, it's like four really bad performances that just Mm -hmm. stay with you. Um, I don't know if he's necessarily like more prone to terrible playoff games as any other superstar. I just feel like for some reason, some stick with us more than others.
0: Yeah, and I think if you don't win a championship, like, then you, you, like, people remember these more clearly, right? Because you don't have the perspective of, well, this guy also won the championship one time. Like, look at how we treated Dirk. Like, Harden is kind of like the new Dirk in that sense. Like, he's a phenomenal player. He's going to win MVP, but, like, he hasn't gotten it done in the playoffs. And so we sort of, we slight him and we don't, you know, elevate him to the echelon of, like, one of the three best players in the game.
1: Like, but, like, perfect example is, like, when OKC blew the 3 1 lead. Against the Warriors in the West Finals. Like, there were some games in that series and down the stretch where Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook were terrible. And mm-hmm. I know Westbrook takes flack now, but like, I don't remember many people talking about Kevin Durant. You don't Be- remember
2: the uh, Mr.
0: Unreliable okay, headline?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh, that's true. The one Oklahoman copy, like the uh, copy editor at the Oklahoma. That wasn't the
0: Grizzlies series, too. That's the thing. That wasn't even <laughs> that
1: series. That was like when Kevin Durant was fine. I'm just saying there's there's been many examples of superstar players having very bad playoff games. And it's just weird how people latch on to certain ones over others. You I know.
2: honestly don't think the Harden thing would have become such a big deal if if it hadn't been for that game. Six I thought you were going to say if it yeah. hadn't been for
1: little B, I actually
0: no, man, don't cross Lil B. Also, like... Yo,
1: please bless this pod. Please bless Pound the Rock, Lil B.
0: Um, yeah, I think Lil B also cursed uh, Daryl Moore because if you look at this roster, it's it's night and day because they had Dwight Howard, Jason Terry, and Josh Smith in the starting lineup for a game in the playoffs in which they were in one of the four finalists. Then Corey Brewer came off the bench. Terrence Jones, who's out of the league, came in off the bench. Prigioni, who's literally a coach now, came off the bench capella was not even a player at the time then it was joey dorsey costas papa nicolau one of my favorite uh, nicknames or just names in general in the league nick johnson and kj mcdaniels so like i can't believe that team even went to the Eastern, western conference finals and i can't believe how much better the rockets are one through 15 three years later yep a hundred percent like that
2: that team was really like had no business being in the conference finals and Harden finished second in MVP voting that year. Yeah. He was it was ridiculous that he managed to carry them to 56 wins and and that pretty stunning series win over the Clippers. Um much as it was saved by Corey Brewer and Jar Smith right. um for the rest of that series, you know, Harden was obviously
0: still the guy. So it would have been fun to see the Clippers play the the Warriors that year. Like the Clippers finally get over the hump, they get to the Western Conference Finals and they we finally get that Clippers Warriors um you know matchup that we sort of not dreamed of but like it kind of just feels like that series ended that rivalry ended without an actual final death blow
2: yeah well the, the last time they played in the playoffs was before the Warriors kind of became yeah. the Warriors right they and were the still Clippers coached won by Mark Jackson and it was an amazing seven game series that ended yeah. with them scrapping in the tunnel so it would have been nice to get a redux
0: for sure yeah All right, that does it for the podcast. Uh, Once again, thanks to Joe Scacharo and Joe Wolfon, and we'll be back next week.